Three weeks ago, uh, we started a series on repentance. Uh, the title of that uh, series I mentioned is, uh, I have sinned, sign of false or true repentance. And this is the fourth uh, message in that series. And in the first two, we saw ten characteristics of false repentance. Uh, five in the first, uh, the second five in the second message. And last week, we uh, surveyed the Old Testament uh, to see what uh, the Old Testament scriptures talk about repentance. And as I mentioned uh, uh, last week, this week we're going to look at the New Testament, uh, overview the New Testament to see uh, the importance the New Testament uh, gives about uh, repentance. Uh, and then I, in, in order to help us, uh, this, is, this is a little different uh, approach to this subject because of the vastness of the subject. So it's kind of like a, as I said last week, semi-lecture, semi-sermon uh, type of a approach, but the bottom line is we are going to be looking at scriptures, uh, a lot of them. Uh, so so that's why last week and this week we're throwing scriptures on the screen there, uh, so it'll be a little easier to uh, follow along. Uh, uh, so I'm going to be going at a little uh, faster uh, pace because we have uh, a lot of material to cover. But uh, before I do that, for those of you who were not here last week, and even if you were here, just to refresh our memory, uh, I came up with a working definition of how the Bible defines true repentance. Because that's, that's, that's the goal of this series. We want to make sure we are not deceived. That we are truly saved by the grace of God. And if you are truly saved, that means we are tr- truly uh, repentant of our sins. So the biblical definition we saw last week was basically that uh, repentance according to the scriptures is the change of the whole person, change of the whole person from sin to God. It, it's a turning from sin to God in our thought, in our emotion, and the will. That's the intellectual side, the emotional side, and the volitional side. We're turning from sin to God in all those three aspects, and that turn will be evidenced outwardly by a life of obedience. What is happening on the inside will reveal itself on the outside. The thought refers to, like I said, the intellectual aspect where a person in their mind recognizes, I have sinned. I am guilty. That's that conviction in the thought process. And the emotion deals with the sorrow that comes with recognition, I have sinned. This now brings about a shame, a sorrow, a sense of remorse. Thought affects your emotion. But that alone is not enough. There's a third very important aspect. And that's the will. That's that volitional aspect. Now because I understand I'm a sinner, because I feel shame and sorrow for my sin, now in my heart I resolve to turn from my sin and turn to God through faith In Jesus Christ. It's a heartfelt desire that says God. I want to turn from my own ways. I want to turn from my own efforts. My own sinful thinking. And I want to turn to you. And commit my life. To you through faith. In Jesus Christ. So thought. Emotion. And will. All three aspects. Are involved in biblical repentance. And when these three are genuinely present in a person's inward life, it will be evidenced outwardly by a changed life. And then, and only then, can a person confidently say, God has truly done a work in my heart. I do have genuine saving faith. I am truly repentant. You see, biblical repentance is not merely a change of mind. It's a change of mind that will outwardly result in a change of life. The direction of a person changes from the inside out. It has to happen on the inside first, but then it's revealed on the outside. Now, please understand, I am not saying that a person has to actually live a changed life for a period of time before we can say repentance is genuine. 
that would then make repentance a work. And that's contrary to Bible's teaching where it clearly says a person is justified by faith alone, Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. What I said last week and I'm saying again this week is that when a person genuinely experiences this repentance which God does in us, when the person experiences on the inside, in the mind, emotions and the will, there will be, there must be a change on the outside. Good, good tree bears good fruit. Jesus said that very clearly. In other words, a changed life is the proof of a changed heart. It's the fruit of repentance, not the result of repentance. So we need to understand that. It's not the result. It's not the basis. Sorry, it's not the basis. A changed life is the fruit of genuine repentance. So once again, keep this definition in mind because we're going to see how the New Testament also supports this definition like we saw last week. How the Old Testament, example after example, we saw how it supports this definition. Biblical repentance is a change of the whole person from sin to God in thought, in emotion, and will that will be evidenced outwardly by a life of obedience. But let's pray and ask God to bring it to bear upon our hearts uh, the importance of this subject. Why I'm going through so many verses is because of the simple fact. We need to understand in this day and age how God stresses about the importance of repentance in our lives. We need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. So by surveying a lot of scriptures, what my prayer and hope is that the Holy Spirit will bring to bear upon our hearts this extremely integral part of our conversion, which is repentance. We cannot tread lightly on this subject. As I said last week, man is born for one thing and one thing only, to repent. Matthew Henry, that great Puritan, said, I would rather die practicing repentance or preaching repentance. That's what every Christian's life is about. We are continual repenters. In fact, we need to be constantly repenting of our repentance because it is so shallow. So with that in mind, let's go to the one and only Christ who through His Spirit can help us understand the significance of this important subject in our individual lives. Because if the Spirit doesn't work, this whole thing is useless. We might as well pack up and leave. In fact, if the Spirit does not work, and if we are not responding to the Spirit's work, guess what? You bring a greater judgment upon yourself because this sermon will inform your minds more. Greater truth, greater accountability. So as I pray, you pray in your own heart, Lord, do this work in me. Not about do this work in my someone else's heart that's not here or someone who is here with me. I'm telling you honestly, as I'm standing and preaching, my prayer is that God would do this work in my own heart. Imagine how it would be after preaching all this, I stand before Christ one day and I hear him say, depart from me. That is why in my text here, in my notes here, I have in the header and the footer of my notes. Even despite having that, I can forget. There's this, these words, lean on the Holy Spirit's power. Not only to preach, but for this message to work in my own heart. I need the Spirit just as you as well. So let's go in humility and ask the Son of God who is pleased to grant this request. Lord Jesus, you through your Spirit work a very deep work in our hearts. This work of turning from ourselves, turning from our own efforts, turning from everything that is us, turning to you, so that you can give us the faith, you can give us the repentance, you can give us the new heart 
that will make us right in your sight. Lord Jesus, apart from your spirit opening our eyes to not only understand this subject, but also understand its significance in our lives, everything is useless. I pray everyone present here today, whether they've been coming to church for years together or whether they just started, whatever be the case, including myself, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to humble ourselves under the authority of scriptures because when scriptures speak, you speak, Lord. So may your spirit bring this message with deep conviction in our hearts so that we would long to display this biblical repentance that you call us to display. Please, Hear my prayer. I'm a sinful man, weak. Help me to speak your truth into all of our hearts. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. You know, when our Lord Jesus Christ started his public ministry, he started with these words in Matthew 4.17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is how he launched his public ministry. Repent. And when our Lord ended his ministry, just before his ascension, the resurrected Jesus in Luke 46, Luke 24, verses 46 and 47 said this, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Do you see that there? What Jesus is saying is this, Repentance... For the forgiveness of sins, which means if there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Meaning, don't shortcut the message based on the postal code. Starts in Jerusalem, everywhere. Today in Windsor, Ontario, this message is supposed to be preached. Starting in Jerusalem, going Beyond, So we see the first and last words of our Lord in terms of his public preaching ministry was repentance. Starts and ends his ministry with repentance. But it's not just like bookends, beginning and end. Our Lord talked about repentance throughout his earthly preaching ministry. He repeatedly called people to repent and warned them of the serious judgment if they fail to repent. Let me Read a few verses for you. Talks about the call to repentance as well as the judgment for failure to repent. In Luke 5.32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous. The NLT puts it as, I have not come to call those who think who are righteous because there is none that's righteous. No, not one. But sinners to repentance. Which means all of us. We're all sinners. Luke 13.3 Jesus says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Luke 13, 5, he repeats that two verses later, just in case you didn't get it. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And in Matthew 11, verse 20, he is rebuking these religious leaders for their failure to repent and turn to him. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. You saw all these miracles. See, people are so caught up with miracles. But if those miracles don't lead you to true repentance, then you've lost the purpose of that. Miracles point to Jesus' Messiahship. And that's to say, He's the one who can give you life. And in order to get that life, you must repent. And Matthew 21 verse 32, Jesus says, For John, John the Baptist, came to you to show the way of righteousness, to show the way how to be right with God. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. You saw all these things, Jesus tells these religious leaders. You saw all this. You still didn't repent. But you know what the beauty of this is? Tax collectors and prostitutes. What does that tell you? It doesn't matter how much you have sinned. It doesn't matter. Jesus can forgive you. Today you may be sitting there thinking, I am so unworthy. It's good you think that way because you are unworthy. So am I. 
But don't let that stop you. Jesus is for those who recognize their unworthiness. I've come to call sinners to repentance. So don't let your sins stop you. In fact, let your unworthiness and your sins drive you to Jesus. Jesus is still in the business of saving unworthy people because we all are unworthy. Left to us, we will not seek God. We will keep on seeking our own pleasures, what satisfies us more and more. And in describing how God rejoices when one sinner repents, this is what Jesus said. What a beautiful statement, Luke fifteen ten. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Notice this text carefully. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. Who is in the presence of the angels of God? God. This is not talking about angels rejoicing. The one in the presence of the angels. This is the heart of God. He rejoices when one sinner repents. A beautiful picture. We'll be looking at Luke 15 later on. So we can see repentance is an integral part of Jesus' preaching. Why? Why? Simple. Because God hates sin and has to judge the sinner. And the only way for sinners, that's all of us, to escape the judgment of God is to repent, that is, to turn from our sins and turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. God wants us to live, but God cannot compromise His holiness. And the only way for us to live is for us to turn from our own ways and turn to Him. That is why Jesus makes a big issue of repentance because basically repent, that word, has the idea of turning. Inward, which results in outward turning. We saw last week in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 32, the heart of God is that he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone, but rather they repent and live. We have to repent in order to live. That's what Jesus says here. Unless you repent, you will perish. You will. This is not, it will be hard for you to find life or it's going to be a little more challenging. No, you will not find life, Jesus says, unless you repent. That is why repentance was such an integral part of Jesus' ministry. But not only was that an integral part of Jesus' ministry in the New Testament. John the Baptist, who came to introduce Jesus to the nation, when he started his public ministry, this is what John said in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is how John tells the nation, You want to prepare yourself for the Messiah? You want to embrace Him so that you can have life, so that you can have forgiveness for your sins? Repent. Both Jesus and John start their ministry with this call. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. And when Jesus sends the twelve, after calling them to Himself in Mark 6, He sends them out for their first missionary journey. This is what we are told was the content of their preaching. Mark 6, 12. They went out, that's the 12. They went out in pairs. They went out and preached that people should repent. This was the content of their message. Where did they get that idea from? Jesus himself, because he was the one who commissioned them for their task. Go, heal, do all that, but preach that people will repent. In fact, This message of repentance was foremost in the early church even after Jesus ascended to heaven on the day of Pentecost. Church is going to be born. Peter preaches this marvelous gospel to the very people who crucified Jesus. And then he says this in Acts chapter 2 verse 38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent. Repent. Peter repeats that same call in the very next chapter. Acts chapter 3 verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord and then that the Messiah would come. He continues on. But then again notice repent. Turn to God. Turn to God. 
Paul in his preaching at Mars Hill. This, this was this group of people, you know, there were skeptics involved there, the philosophers, the mockers, uh, all those people were there in Mars Hill. He sees these idol worshippers, he sees there's a little idol there that says to an unknown God and all that. He uses all that to preach a wonderful message, a gospel message. And in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, this is what he says, God now commands people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and that he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Listen, there is a judgment coming is what Paul is saying. He's going to judge the world. That's why the world needs to hear this message. Repent. Repent. You cannot keep going on in your own way of life. That is a way that leads to death. This is not something we can play around with. This is not something we can afford to, oh, if I call people to repent, they will stop coming to church. They will not come to the faith. You and I have no business filtering the gospel. This is not my message. That's why I'm reading all these texts so that you will see. I'm just parroting these verses. But that's what the New Testament calls us. To preach. And then later, as Paul meets with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he summarizes both his public and private ministry. Notice how he says this. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. Look at the context. Anything that would be helpful to you. But I have taught you publicly and from house to house. So here's his public ministry and house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Notice what Paul is saying here. Hey, I'm not adjusting the content of my message. If it's public and if it's private, it's the same message. And nor am I adjusting the content based on ethnicity. Whether it's Jew, whether it's Gentile, it's the same message. I don't adjust my message based on the postal code or based on the audience oh this is a little more uh, rich audience I don't want to call them to repentance because if they leave the church loses its funding I don't want to preach this to this group because they're already hurting a lot I don't want to pile more guilt on them no this is what saves people a social gospel does not save people yes we must reach out we must do acts of kindnesses but if we are not preaching the gospel, which is repentance, and then he says that clearly here, notice, that they must turn to God by having faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance was an integral component of Paul's preaching because if there's no repentance, there's no salvation. Here's Paul standing on trial later on before King Agrippa. Paul said, God told this man is going to stand before authorities and proclaim my message. He must suffer much things for my name's sake. And as he stands before Agrippa, again he reiterates his commitment to preach repentance no matter who the audience is. In Acts 26 verse 20 he says, as he recalls his own conversion and his ministry, he says first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and then to the Gentiles. See, he's covering all areas that he's traveled and all kinds of people. Notice what he says. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. It's not just what you say, but how you live matters. If how I live does not matter what I say, then I'm just a liar, deceiving myself and trying to deceive others, including God. Turn to God and demonstrate the repentance by their deeds. That's what I meant by outwardly. There will be a change. There must be a change. Things that I loved before, I start hating them. Things that I hated before, I start loving them. And in writing to the Corinthians, Paul made it very clear. There are two types of sorrow. We talked about this in the very first message. Two types of sorrow. 
one is a genuine sorrow the bible calls as godly sorrow it's a god produced and a godward sorrow another one is a worldly sorrow it's like typical like the world it just grieves because i kind of just feel bad but really not concerned about sin and he says only one sorrow that leads to true repentance which leads to salvation the other sorrow brings death in second corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 this is what paul says godly sorrow this is that emotional aspect we talked about you understand and it produces a sorrow but it's god working in you that brings repentance again we see it's god working in us brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but there's another kind of sorrow a worldly sorrow it brings death a worldly sorrow was like judas's sorrow just had a sorrow balaam's sorrow pharaoh's sorrow we saw all those examples that's so it was never a god word sorrow never a sorrow that led to turn back to god or turn to god and put faith in his son the very last book of the bible revelation gives record of the first of all the five of the seven churches they're commanded to repent of one sin or the other and those seven churches by the way the messages to those apply to the churches of our day and age we went through that series peer went through that for quite some time the church in ephesus is commanded revelation 2:5 consider how far far you have fallen repent and do the things you did at first if you do not repent i will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place to the church in pergamum revelation 2:16 repent therefore otherwise i will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth the church in thyatira revelation 2:22 so i will cast her on a bed of suffering because she was practicing sexual immorality all kinds of bad stuff was going on and i will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways again notice what god is saying here even though you're so messed up you've sexually so defiled yourself but if you repent there's hope there's hope church in sardis Revelation 3 3 remember therefore what you have received and heard you heard the message hold it fast and repent you're not living up to the message but if you do not wake up i will come like a thief and you will not know at what time i will come to you wake up wake up just a few days ago one of the members of our church koruth if you've not seen the picture he will show you his car was hit from behind how many of you four five of you were there five of you were there it was not their fault but someone hit them i see him it doesn't make any sense they were protected because there were winter tires in the back and that protected that impact you see that car you won't see you won't believe that he was in that car wake up i will come like a thief on your way back home today you can die i can die so that's why while you're sitting here or you need to set things right in your heart first set things right and then outwardly do it perhaps there's someone you need to reconcile you take the first step don't wait till they take the first step perhaps it's a wrong relationship you cut it off perhaps you're viewing something that you should not be viewing you cut it off perhaps you're in a job that's compromising that's causing you to sin more and more no matter the justification you resolve this lord's day i'm making a clean break whatever it might be wake up wake up jesus says and finally the church in laodicea revelation 3:19 those whom i love i rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent the very fact god has brought you here this morning to even hear this is because he loves you you can push back and say i don't want this message if you don't the end result is damnation you bring it upon yourself john later in revelation talks about during the tribulation time how people's failure to repent 
will bring eternal destruction upon them. Revelation 9 verses 20 and 21. This is in the middle of all those plagues being unleashed by God. The world is going through the time period called the Great Tribulation. Revelation 9 verses 20 and 21. Notice the rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of silver, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. See that twice they did not repent. God's pouring out judgment, they're seeing it, still they refuse to repent. You don't need to wait till that time. Even now you can see around you and you still refuse to repent. You might not have a physical idol, but yourself itself, you're worshipping self. That's where the root of all idolatry is. God has to be number one in our hearts. We've replaced God with self. You know, Jesus is my co-pilot. You Sometimes you see that sticker in cars. That's such a nasty statement. We're allowing Jesus to co-pilot with us. We should be thankful. Jesus is putting us somewhere in the car. We've reduced him to our level. That's the problem. Revelation 16, verses 8 through 11. This is during the period of the seven bowls being poured out, bowls of judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. A little heat, we run and we want to turn the AC up. Imagine this is judgment from God coming. And that would still be a lot lesser in intensity than how hell is going to feel. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. They knew it as God unleashing his judgment, yet they refused to repent. That's what happens to the heart that continues to remain hard. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. You may look at this and think, how could people do that? How could you do that? Still holding on to those sins that God has called you to turn from. How could I do that? That's why I said, we need to repent of our repentance. So you see the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation makes it crystal clear that repentance is a part, integral part of the saving gospel. No repentance, no eternal life. Just as in the Old Testament, even in the New, God continually calls people to turn from their sins in order to find true life. I have come that they might have life and this is the life. I have come to call sinners to repentance. Let's go back to our working definition of repentance and work our way through it step by step. We're going to go through a few passages of the New Testament just like we did with the old last week. Biblical repentance is a change of the whole person from sin and self to God in thought, emotion and the will and that will be evidenced outwardly by a life of obedience. Notice, starting point of biblical repentance is on the thought side, the intellectual aspect, where one acknowledges he or she has sinned. Now in the Old Testament, we saw several examples of people acknowledging their sin. Acknowledging their sin. The thinking process, I have sinned, said Pharaoh, Balaam, the people in the wilderness, all the Saul, all those people we saw. But, they were unbelievers. But we also saw David saying, I have sinned, a believer. So in the New Testament also, we're going to see unbelievers acknowledging their sin and even feeling bad about it, but not going to that final step of turning to God. And we're also going to see those of genuine faith doing that. First example that you can think of an unbeliever is who? Judas. Right in Matthew 27, 
when Judas who had betrayed him saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and, and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money in the, into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Notice, Judas, Judas acknowledges, I have sinned. And he felt so bad. There was a remorse. The sorrow was also there. But that's all. He didn't turn to Christ. The third aspect was not there. He tried to buy forgiveness by his efforts. Remember in the first sermon we talked about penance, the Roman Catholic false teaching about I can do some things to earn. He probably thought, I hang myself, that's a way of earning. Whatever was the case, he didn't turn to Christ. Another unbeliever who expressed a sorrow the type of sorrow that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 7, the worldly sorrow and not godly sorrow, was this man called Simon in Acts 8. He's often called as Simon the magician or Simon the sorcerer. Philip is preaching the gospel. Acts 8, church is persecuted. Guess who's the leader of the persecution group? Saul. Church is scattered now. So they go to Samaria and Philip preaches his gospel. People are getting saved. And there was this fellow by the name Simon. He was impressing people with a lot of his tricks. And we find here in Acts 8, chapter 12, and going forward. Uh, I've split that here, but you can follow in your church Bibles also if you want. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, the people in Samaria, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. That's a little clue for us. This is why he believed, because he was impressed by these signs and miracles. Just like today, many churches, people flock only for that, signs and miracles. Oh, he believed, he even got baptized, that's what the text says. But then notice verse 14. When the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that, that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Remember, Acts has a transition period. Apostles had to be present in order for people to receive the Holy Spirit, to authenticate it's a true work of God. The uh, Jews got saved in Acts 2. Now the Gentiles, the Samaritans are coming into the church, Acts 8. Acts 10, Cornelius comes and then Acts 19. Those who got baptized at John's baptism are coming and that's why apostles were there throughout. But then notice verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. You see that? And said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Simon believed, it says. Even got baptized. But his faith was not genuine. He followed the apostles. Not because he truly believed in Jesus. Not because he recognized he's a sinner and Jesus is the Savior. Hey, Jesus is his miracle worker. Apostles are miracle workers. I've already been doing some sorceries. This is just another way of making money. This time it's under the name of Christ. His faith was a false faith. Notice how Peter called out his false faith with a serious word of warning. Acts chapter 8 verses 20 through 23. Peter answered, May your money perish with you. What a beautiful statement here. Because you cannot buy ministry with money. Preachers have to have this etched in their hearts. Never sell out ministry for money. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Faith, repentance, salvation, everything is grace through faith. It's a gift. It's a gift. You and I didn't wake up one morning and said, today is a beautiful day for me to put my faith in Jesus. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. God breathed new life into us. It's a gift. You cannot buy it. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Never are those words spoken to a believer. 
Your heart is not right before God. You're not in the right standing. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope, in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. You see that there, those words, money perish with you. Heart is not right before God. Full of bitterness, captive to sin. Never are such words described of a believer. It's a false believer. So Peter calls him, again, display true repentance over your sin. Look at verse 22. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. So it tells us, even at the thought life, God cares. He needed to repent of this. What a blow. This is to the false teachers of our day who sell stuff like holy oil or blessed handkerchief and this and that and the other. And the amazement is people are flocking to these people. Read your Bibles. And notice how Simon responds. Here is God in his mercy. He could have killed him right away. Peter could have pronounced death judgment upon him. He gives him an opportunity to repent. But notice Simon's response. Again, we see his repentance as being false. Remember, one of the ten characteristics of false repentance I said is repenting only to escape present consequences, not because of a true hatred towards sin. Remember, Pharaoh did that. Get me out of this plague. I repent. I have sinned. Once that plague is gone, went back to his old ways. That's the kind of repentance Simon displays here. Notice in verse 24, Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you may have said, you have said may happen to me. He's not saying, I'm sorry for my act. Hey, you pray, not him. You pray that none of this, what you're telling me, is going to happen to me. Again, grief only over consequences, not for sin itself. When God brings a conviction, that conviction is for the deed not for the consequences. It's like a criminal. He gets caught. So he now works in agreement with the cops to rat out on other people so he can get a reduced sentence. His focus is only about the consequences. I've been caught. Not about, I'm sorry for the act. Here, he wasn't sorry for the act. He was just concerned about, hey, 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 listen, tell God to back off. Please, you pray. Pastor, you pray. Everything will be well for me. No, did you pray? Did you resolve in your heart to turn from your sin? Pastor is not a magician. If you are not willing to repent, you will perish. I will perish. So we see, like in the old, even in the new, there's unbelievers who acknowledge that they've sinned even express a fear, a shame, a sorrow. But they don't go to the third aspect, an actual turning. Let me give you a couple of examples. Remember, repentance is a wholesome change. Mind, thought, will, outwardly evidenced by actions. I'm going to give you two examples. Actually, both are from the words of Jesus himself. The first one is in Luke 18. In Luke 18, Verses 9 through 14 is this familiar uh, parable, often called as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke 18, uh, if you want to use the church Bibles here, it's uh, page 1494. It's a beautiful parable that illustrates repentance the biblical way. Verse 9 gives us the setting of the parable. Remember, every parable, there's a setting why Jesus gives that particular parable. Verse 9 says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Some who thought, I'm okay, I'm good. I don't need to repent. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Two completely opposite spectrums here. One considered to be the most religious of the day. That's the Pharisee. And the other considered to be the scum, the scum, the, the hated tax collector who took money from his own people and sold his soul to Rome. Notice the Pharisee's prayer. 
the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, looking down on others. I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this scum, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. That's more than what was required in the Old Testament. And give a tenth of all I get. Remember last week when we looked at Psalm 51, one of the things that David said after his sin with Bathsheba and when he was confronted, he said, God, I would bring sacrifice to you. But what's more important than sacrifice is what? A broken and a contrite heart. Only then that sacrifice is acceptable. Do you see any brokenness, any contriteness in this man's heart? Even a little tinge of, I may, I may have this sin, nothing there. He only came to give a praise report of his religious performance. That's why he came. I mean, he could have done that just by sitting at his home. But where's the fun in that? He has to come and do it publicly so that people will affirm, what a godly man, what a godly woman. His goal was in being seen as righteous, not in being, not in being righteous. There's a huge difference in being recognized and seen as a godly person instead of actually being a godly person. That's what he, for him and for people like him, it's all about image. It's all about image. How do people perceive me, my faith, my house, my kids, my, because everything is a reflection on me. Hypocrite only wants to appear godly, not strive to be godly. You see, repentance is never possible when a person finds no need for it. Only when you find a need for it, you will repent. He didn't find any need. God, I mean, what more can I do? That's what he's telling God. It goes to show people can fast, give money, faithfully attend church, and yet never humble themselves in true biblical repentance. That's the danger of a heart that is blinded by pride and seeking praise from others. I want people to look at me as such and such a thing. But notice the despised tax collector. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. First of all, notice the tax collector acknowledges his sin. That's the mental aspect. A sinner. The Greek literally reads, the sinner. The sinner. He doesn't see himself as another sinner. But when the Spirit of God works in you, you see only yourself and your sin. You don't see others. Not your wife, not your husband, not your children. I and I alone have sinned. That's what David did in Psalm 51, didn't he? Notice how his emotions are affected. The second aspect. Mind is touched, now the emotions. He stood at a distance because his conscience would not permit him to approach God. He would not even look up to heaven. Why? Because he is so bowed down in shame. My sins are too heavy for me to bear. He says, he beat his chest. I deserve your wrath. I deserve. That's the emotion triggered. How could I have done this to my creator? Now, you also see his will affected. How so? Notice his prayer. God have mercy on me, a sinner. That word mercy is associated with the concept of atonement. God, cover my sin. The mercy seat in the Old Testament, that's the image this person has. In other words, what he's saying is this, God, may your wrath be turned aside by the means of a sacrifice to me, the sinner. May your wrath be satisfied, propitiated. The only way God's wrath is satisfied is through a sacrifice. When this man prays, have mercy on me, what he's saying is this, you please satisfy your wrath against me because I deserve all that wrath because I'm a sinner through the means of a sacrifice. So he's going back to God, turning to God in faith. Only you can provide God what you demand. I cannot. He knew the only way to have a right standing with God 
is to acknowledge this sin, feel ashamed and ask God to accept us through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, paid the full price and rose again. There is no other way to be right with God. Only through the God-man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ who died and rose again. Every other religious leader, prophet, they're guarding their tombs. Jesus' tomb alone is empty. So he goes to God in humility, pleading for mercy. Isn't that a clear picture, folks? Mind affected, emotions stirred up, and he turns to God, pleading. He doesn't come demanding. God have mercy. God have mercy. Look at Jesus' verdict upon both the people. I tell you that this man, meaning a tax collector, rather than the other, that's the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves, who feel, I don't have to repent, I don't have to turn to Christ, will be humbled, will be brought down, down, down to the bottom pit called hell. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. That outwardly religious Pharisee came with a lot of pride, went home, with this one word written on his head, death. He came lifting his head up. God put a sentence that will bring him down. The tax collector came with his head bowed down. He had death written all over him. But when he left, he had this one word, justified, written all over him. God lifted his head. The Lord lifts all who are bowed down. He is close to the brokenhearted. That's what the scriptures say. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you. Jesus gives new life to those who humble themselves and acknowledge their sin. God always blesses true repentance. Always. So that's the first example we see. Repentance involves all of us. All, all the being. There's a, there's a life that is changed on the inside First and foremost. Second example of biblical repentance. Now we get to that Luke 15. They're often called as the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of the prodigal God. Because in this, it's God who lavishes this kind of grace. Luke 15, verses, if you're in Luke 18, just flip a three, three, two or three pages back. In Luke 15, we're going to pick it up from verses 11 through 31. We're not going to read all of it because of lack of time. Let me... Set the stage and then we'll read a few verses. The parable is about a father having two sons. The youngest son tells the father, give me my inheritance. He demands it. That alone was worthy of the father striking him down. Because in that culture, you don't ask for inheritance. Because what he's basically saying is this, I want you dead. Because inheritance would be given only after the father is dead. So by him asking for that inheritance, he's saying, I wish you were dead. That this parable completely flips everything in the minds of the uh, Pharisees because they say this man eats with sinners. That's the setting of Luke 15. He says, yes, this is the heart of God. He loves sinners. So the father gives him. Verse 13. The father gave him his share. Not long after, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. It's like people, as soon as they leave their Christian setting in their home, they come to another place, they live. Atrocious, sinful, wicked, immoral lives. That's what this man did. Wild living, text says that. You can conclude what all that wild living would have involved. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. God brought him down. That's an act of mercy. Act of mercy. God brought him down. When he came to his senses, ah, there's a little clue for us. Intellectual. Mind is affected. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Notice the words. When he came to his senses, first part of verse 17, and resolved to admit to his father. He's not yet gone to his father. He's resolving in his mind, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's the first thing. I have sinned. But then notice in verse 19, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He feels that shame. I'm not living up to this calling for which you have created me, father. He's filled with shame. He says, you know, make me like one of your hired servants. These hired servants were like day laborers. Not even household servants. Even lower than household servants. Just make me like one of them. That's shame. Emotions have now kicked in. And then notice in verse 20, the first part. So he got up and went to his father. There's that turning. There's that turning. So you see, mentally these things are happening now. Mentally, emotionally, and the will on the inside. And then notice... How can we not look at this parable and be touched? I had this in mind last week when you were talking about that, Melinda. And notice what Jesus says later on. This is the kind of repentance that brings joy in the presence of angels to the heart of God. God does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he rejoices when they turn to him. Look at the second part of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What does it tell you? The father never stopped loving him. Father kept on looking. You don't know how many years went by. Father kept on looking. And filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son. Imagine, Middle East, the guy's got all his robes. He's gathering all that robes. That's the idea of gird up the loins of your mind has the idea of pull up, roll up your sleeves and get to work, we say. It's like that he's rolling up everything and he's running. It's a shameful picture. But that's what this parable is designed to do. This God who's scandalous in giving his grace to us. What kind of a God is he who gives this grace to wretched sinners? He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. It's a shameful picture in that culture, but... Jesus deliberately uses these words to say, this is the heart of God. The father never stopped loving. Those of you who are parents, never, ever, ever give up. And notice the son's repentance was not temporary. Now he saw his father, he changes his mind. Oh, father's embraced me and kissed me. All is good. He doesn't do that. Look at verse 21. True repentance lasts. It's not temporary. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. First thing is I've sinned against God, vertical, and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Whatever he resolved in his heart, now he vocalizes it. Notice the father. Does he shame him? Does he scold him? Does he throw back his sins at him? But graciously welcomed him. Not as a servant. Not as a hired worker. But as a son adopted into his family, co-heirs with Christ. See that image here. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Are you deaf, dad? Didn't you hear what I'm saying? Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. What a beautiful description. This is the kind of repentance that God is pleased with and that brings about his blessing. Dead in sins, but now alive as a result of genuine repentance and faith. All aspects of this man on the inside was affected, which is revealed clearly on the outside. Jesus again makes it clear. I could go through many more. Already I'm way past my time. But point is, Jesus makes a big issue of repentance. 
because it is a big issue. And the New Testament clearly warns of severe judgment to those who don't display this kind of repentance. Let me leave you with just one passage. In my mind, I've said this in the church often, this is the most chilling passage in all of the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely contrast. Remember last week I said, people think God of the Old Testament is the most punishing, God of the New Testament is not as hard. Here we find you reject in the, under the New Testament times from that point on, judgment is more severe. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctifies them and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Idea is this. Today the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Repent, repent, come to Christ. And you keep saying, no, 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 no. You're pushing the Holy Spirit back, which means you're insulting the Holy Spirit who's offering you grace. You keep saying no, no, no. This is what? You have to expect a fearful expectation of judgment. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, which means we don't take vengeance in our hands. We leave everything in God's hands. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Look at verse 31. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those who rejected Moses' words will suffer. But those who reject after Jesus came, will suffer much more. Much more. Why? Because we have a fuller, clearer picture of what Christ has done. Nothing is in shadow anymore. The substance has come. That's why we need to take repentance very seriously. Very seriously. We cannot play with these things. Listen, the Father will not treat lightly those who reject His Son whom He put to death for sins. The Father will not take it lightly. Verse one, verse 31 is one of the most severe warnings in all of the Bible. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the only way to avoid falling into the hands of this living God is to turn from our sins and fall at his feet and embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior. We fall at his feet now. We will not fall into his hands the day of judgment. Complete inwardly in my thought, in my emotions, in my will. I turn. I ask God to produce this in me. Because passages like Acts 5.29, Acts 11.18, 2 Timothy 2.25 tell us repentance is a gift, just like faith according to Ephesians 2.8 and 9. We have to ask Him, give me, produce in me this kind of a repentance. Even as Christians, we cannot repent on our own. God has to continually work in us. Show me my sin and enable me to repent without any excuses. God will never forgive an excuse, but God will always forgive a true confession. We'll talk about true confession in the sixth part of this sermon. Next week is another. We're going to look at some characteristics of true repentance. But Let's go to God. All of us need to go to Him. And that kind of an inward turning will display outwardly through a changed life. So, Wherever you find yourself in your spiritual journey, one thing is true. Christ welcomes sinners. Even as children who are stumbling into sin, let's go back. Let's plead with them. Don't let these words fall on empty ground or hard hearts. Please, for your own sake, for my own sake, I'm saying this, let's be true 
repenters. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. This is a supernatural lifestyle. That is why we've given us supernatural power to turn from ourselves. I feel even more wretched preaching this because who am I, Lord? But just like your people here, I too, I too join them. We bow ourselves, Lord, at the foot of the cross. Lord Jesus, you do the work that's needed in every heart through your spirit for your glory. Your name I pray. Amen.